Mike and Claude again on Peace and Conflict podcast. We had a short hiatus there for a few weeks uh, for a number of different reasons, but we're back and we're hoping to continue providing some, you know, bi-weekly content at least. Today, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, the recent election in the United States, since both of us, you know, live here in the States. And, you know, specifically as it relates to the work that we both do in, you know, preventing mass atrocities and, and genocide, how the president-elect Trump administration, um, what we think will happen in that administration and what we think some of the challenges and, and some possible points of progress could be made. I guess kicking it off, I think for us, especially since both Claude and I are Africanists and, you know, Claude is you know, from Rwanda, we, we talk a lot about the conflicts that are happening in Africa specifically in Central East Africa. And we, our past two, you know, podcasts have talked about South Sudan and Congo. And right now, both of those countries at this time in, you know, the next month or so when the presidential transition is going to happen, there's going to be a lot of issues that need to be met with some attention. So Claude, I don't know if you want to kick it off and talk a little bit about Congo first. Um, we can touch a little bit on what's going on with South Sudan and how this you know, new uh, election might affect that. Thank you, Mike, for the introduction. And hello, everyone. Uh, we have missed you. Hopefully, you've missed us, too. Um, <laughs> today, we, as Mike said, wanted to talk about the potential impact of the new U.S. administration, the incoming U.S. administration on... Uh, and I'll start with uh, the Congo and we'll go into South Sudan and um, potentially other areas. Um, so as you've probably heard from our previous podcast, the DRC is in a challenging, in challenging time in the transition period where the current president, Joseph Kabila, is due or supposed to, according to the Constitution, vacate the presidency after his second term, which he's serving until December the 19th of this year, so in, in the next three weeks, he's supposed to hand power over to a newly elected president. However, the elections never took place. The elections were never organized, and mostly because Joseph Kabila kept pushing back the election to the point where now there's not going to be an election this year. And uh, there was actually a hearing earlier today in uh, U.S. Congress about that. And Mike followed the uh, hearing. I haven't actually had a chance to uh, listen and watch the video. So I'll let Mike talk about that when we get to it. However... Currently, one of the things that's happening is that the current administration, the Obama administration, is putting pressure on the DRC government to organize elections. Um, also, uh, the current administration has done things that have not previously been done with uh, other administrations, which is openly and publicly criticize uh, presidents in the Great Lakes region whenever they um, either overstay or try to overstay their power, um, and which has been the case with the DRC. There is also an envoy 
in the region and um, particular, particularly in the DRC. There's some attention on the country. It's not resolving the issues necessarily, but everyone is aware that the U.S., one of the biggest donor nations, is watching, and that is big. With uh, the Trump administration, I'm afraid that there may not be the this kind of attention on the region. Uh, just Africa in general is probably going to be uh, an afterthought in the administration. Yeah. And if that happens, then um, it gives it almost gives carte blanche to the Kabila administration to do whatever they want, which my suspicion is they want to push the election as far as possible in the future and in the meantime take a leaf out of the other regional leaders, um, um, Museveni of Uganda and uh, Paul Kagame of Rwanda and change the constitution and allow himself to be president basically for life. Uh, and I do want to, you know, um, Mike, turn it over to you so you can maybe provide your thoughts and also anything from the hearing earlier that you know, I think the audience yeah, may benefit from definitely. hearing. I mean, I think I think you made a really good point about the fact that you know this our current president, President Obama, has spoken um, against power grabs, especially on the continent, but you know more broadly. He, you know, had a very famous speech years ago in which he specifically mentioned that, you know, Africa doesn't need strong men, it needs strong institutions. And then kind of reiterated yep. that again at the African Union Summit earlier this year, or last year. Uh, I, I think, I think when you, you look at the context of the Great Lakes region, like you said, you know, there's a special envoy appointed and, and you know, some of our listeners I'm sure know what that means, but, you know, really a special envoy is a diplomat that is assigned to specifically, diplomat with, with an office, with, you know, staff, who assigned to specifically deal with a issue. And in the context of the U.S. Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region, his focus is only on the Great Lakes region. He is supposed to deal with, especially in, you know, the DRC, but also in the crises that have been emerging in Burundi for the last year and a half. Yep. on those issues exclusively. And the, he's the top diplomat. He's a, you know, the person who's going in and, and dealing with any kind of negotiations or any kind of sanctions issues, etc. And having that increased focus is really helpful and important for the administration to better navigate the situation on the ground and also the, the, the policies and the politics. And unfortunately that's a presidential appointee position. And so any you know, special envoy, there's also a special envoy for Sudan and South Sudan as well. Those positions will all be vacated with the, the transition of power in the U.S. government. And any administration, you know, there, there would be some lag time between, you know, appointing a new special envoy. But with this administration, some are wondering whether or not a special envoy will be appointed at all. There's a number of people within Congress Many of whom are Republicans who may be, you know, advising President-elect Trump during this this transition time, who feel that special envoy positions and added, you know, diplomatic uh, efforts are not always helpful. And so there there could be instead of just some lag time of you know three to six months of not appointing a new envoy, that position may never be filled, um, which could be problematic. 
like you said, President Kabila, you know, the elections are, are definitely not going to happen before the 19th. And there is still a window of opportunity in which the president could step down and allow for what the Constitution says for this, you know, kind of awkward period where the, the president of the Senate would take over temporarily of, of the country. And that could happen. It's highly unlikely. But it also could happen within a little bit of a longer time frame, but not so long as the most recent agreement in which states that elections will be delayed until 2018. So that's, you know, depending on when in 2018, it could be, you know, two, two full years that the elections are delayed. And yeah, and that's I, outrageous. Yeah. And I think the most accurate point you made is while President Obama's administration has not been able to really, you know, change the calculus of the, the, the current administration under President Kabila, and then change his decision to hold on to power. Um, there has been some increased pressure with sanctions and other things that has, you know, definitely perked up the the inner circle of Kabila to say, well, you know, we know that they're watching and they're, you know, paying attention. If you take away that little bit of a spotlight on the situation, and, and the same thing in South Sudan, and really elsewhere around the world that, you know, the U.S. has kind of been paying attention to, and taking the lead on setting the tone for what other international actors are doing, if you take away that spotlight, you wonder what else could happen. And President Kabila, right now, you know, we know that there's going to be mass protests in the streets. There's going to be crackdowns, you know, of those protesters. But earlier this year, after chief of police was sanctioned, there were protests in Kinshasa, the capital of Congo, and there weren't as violent crackdowns as there had been in the past. And you know, a number of people point to the fact that. They were, the government was worried about further sanctions. And so if you take away that little bit of a spotlight, anything could happen. And, and the government may take that opportunity to say, well, we know we're not going to you know, face any reprisals from the U.S. government. If we don't face reprisals from the U.S. government, that probably means we won't face reprisals from the EU or the U.N. And if that all comes down, we can kind of get away with anything that we want. I agree with you. And I think that's the hope. Uh, from uh, the Kabila administration is that no, the U.S. administration will become totally hands-off and look the other way. And if that happens, they'll take advantage of it. And I, I really think um, that he's hoping that that happens. And that's obviously against the wishes of the Congolese people in terms of what Kabila does. Uh, the Congolese people have made it clear that they want him to respect the Constitution. But the struggle in the Congo is both internal and external, as it is in most or a lot of the conflicts, uh, and especially on the African continent. And the U.S. has major leverage on the DRC and the Kabila government because the U.S. is one of the, if not the largest, donor nations. Uh, and, and you uh, referred to South Sudan a few times in your um, comments, Mike. Um, I, w- I would like to um, also uh, for you to share a little bit about your thoughts on how South Sudan is going to be impacted, um, or the conflict in South Sudan is going to be impacted uh, with this um, new administration in the U.S. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think South Sudan is a a little bit more more interesting because South Sudan has been a huge failure, um, or I should say, the Obama administration has failed miserably in righting the wrongs in South Sudan time and time again, and so there's not really a great yep. you know oh there's been so much you know great work that's being done by the Obama administration in the last few months, and now that that work might be lost. I mean, I am a huge critic of the South Sudanese policy by the U.S. government. Um, it has not, you know, in, in many ways there hasn't really been uh, a strong policy. And it's it led to kind of like what you were saying before, carte blanche by the uh, South Sudanese government to kind of just go out and take more power and, you know, be more corrupt and kill more people. Just the other day, uh, actually it was just today, I think, UN Commission on Human Rights, uh, came back from South Sudan and had a, you know, not the full report, but like a little press release or, you know, about their report and about their findings and what they're seeing. And they've said that flat out, full scale ethnic cleansing is happening in South Sudan. And, you know, they're warning that it needs to be acted upon sooner rather than later to avoid, you know, what everybody likes to say, uh, you know, a, a Rwanda-like event. Or, you know, I think they said the stage is being set for a repeat of what happened in Rwanda. I would argue, uh, you know, I hate that kind of comparison between different genocides or mass atrocity situations. I think it, it causes problems of uh, trying to check off boxes. And I think, you know, yeah. each individual event had different contexts and problems and issues. But um, as far as it being genocide, I, I think you'd be very hard-pressed to say that genocide has not been occurring in South Sudan because there have been extreme targeted killings against certain tribes. But with that said, I think, again, it's that kind of spotlight thing, right? You know, we have envoys, we have somewhat of a spotlight there. We have had some engagement, you know, by the U.S. and by the U.N. Security Council. Not enough. I mean, they dropped the ball on having an arms embargo earlier on, and the the government was able to purchase a lot more munitions and heavy weapons and attack helicopters. Um, And it looks like now the, you know, U.S.'s current push, finally, to have an arms embargo drafted um, at the Security Council level is going to fail. Um, but I think, you know, really, when you take, again, when you take away that spotlight, what could happen? And I, I could see a world in which the SPLA, the, you know, the SPLM, the government of South Sudan, will go yeah. on the full offensive and try to finish the job of fully taking control of the country, fully taking power, and doing it by wholesale slaughtering their opponents. And yeah, and that's, that's already been happening with Definitely. some attention to it. And my fear, again, as, you know, I said on the DRC is that the spotlight is going to go away. Mm-hmm. And when the spotlight goes away, then the government and, and the, their opponents who ha- are not shy about massacring, you know, hundreds of their opponents, I think they're just going to, you know, take advantage of that spotlight going away, and they're going right. to, you know, use the the method that they're used to using, and this time a lot more brazenly, because no mm-hmm. one is saying, hey, stop, you know, or we're watching, or there may be some consequences. Yeah. Um, and, and I think uh, if you look at Africa policy writ large, it tends to almost always be on the back burner, right? It's not 
yep. the foremost uh, foreign policy issue or objective by the U.S. You know, government of any administration. Um, yeah. But <laughs> under a Trump administration, at least as of right now, based on what we know about you know what Trump has, has said during the campaign trail, his focus has been on certain things, and the people that are advising him currently. It, it looks like it's not even going to be on the back burner. It looks like Africa policy is not going to even be on the stove. And yep. that's a scary prospect, not only for the DRC and South Sudan, but, you know, more broadly. And for a lot of reasons, partially intentional in that, you know, a, a Trump administration surrounded by certain individuals and, and their past record and rhetoric on Africa issues or their lack thereof of, of experience, um, could mean that there's going to be a severe lack of focus on the continent more broadly and then these specific issues um, as well. And, you know, the Congo Research Group, you know, pointed it out pretty clearly is that they don't believe that President Trump is going to necessarily try to, you know, cut deals or work well with people like President Kabila and, you know, be a friend. It's just that it's likely that these issues are not going to be at the forefront of the administration's mind, and they're going to have a tough time finding experienced Africanists, you know, policy wonks and academics as well, to advise the Trump administration on these issues. Agreed. And, um, again, you know, that's the whole continent, not even just as you say, it's not even just uh, South Sudan and uh, the DRC. It's the whole continent. You know, it's going to be, it seems anyway, you know, like I said, like, you know, and as you said, neither one of us knows. We're just speaking based on um, both uh, the campaign that uh, Donald Trump ran and the people that he's nominating for um, the various positions. Obviously, the Secretary of State has not been nominated yet, but um, we're kind of seeing the drift of where things are going, and it doesn't seem like there's going to be a lot of attention. Right, and he has already nominated Nikki Haley as the ambassador to the UN, you know, uh, the governor of South Carolina, somebody with very little foreign policy experience, um, to be... The United States government's face to the largest international uh, organization in the world. So, in, you know, oh yeah, that is it's interesting. That's definitely interesting. Um, and, and so, speaking of that, you spoke about the UN, and um, you know, UN Security Council generally, you know, works closely with um, the ICC. Um, how do you see, what direction do you think the U.S. will go? I know um, the U.S. is not a signatory to the Rome Statute. How do you think the relationship is going to be impacted between the U.S. and the ICC? I think it'll be definitely, it'll get frostier. I mean, it, you know, this is a very tenuous time for the ICC. You see uh, South Africa and Burundi already pulling out. Um, Russia stating its intention to remove its um, support to the ICC. Uh, it's a definitely a tough time for international law and justice right now. And, you know, I think, again, you know, I, I can only reiterate this so many times, but 
we're we're judging what president elect trump based on his rhetoric on the campaign trail because he doesn't have a record as a government official and based on his rhetoric and he said time and time again which he has recently walked back a little bit that he would reinstitute waterboarding and other forms of torture and like i said he has recently walked that back a bit but who knows where he'll actually fall once he's in power you know mm-hmm. torture being a clear war crime um, and, and a violation yep. of international law. And he's talked about, you know, bombing terrorists and terrorist families or, you know, killing terrorists and terrorist families and targeting them. And again, you know, another clear war crime and potentially, you know, crime against humanity. Um, so I think it's very unlikely that if this president, it, you know, if he carries out those things that he said during the campaign trail and that becomes part of his policy, uh, he would be very, it would be remiss to try to get us more involved in a organization like the ICC, an institution like the ICC that is supposed to um, find perpetrators and bring them to justice of war crimes and crimes against humanity. So, yeah, and I think um, from the ICC's perspective, there's probably not going to be a change in terms of how the ICC um, relates to the U.S sure my my guess is that they're going to try to maintain you know the relationship or maybe improve if they think they can improve it but as far as the administration itself i think um yeah the the relationship is gonna it's not going to be an upgraded relationship it's going to be a downgraded relationship and and a little bit more distant um just because you know um, if if it becomes policy that uh, U.S. you know American troops will be asked or directed and commanded to not only go after terrorists but go after terrorist families and other things that are uh, war crimes, then there is no benefit to the U.S. Uh, being close or even friendly with right. the ICC. Well, and you add to the fact that the ICC has recently been looking into uh, war crimes that the U.S. government and U.S. soldiers committed in Afghanistan, um, including torture. And yep. it's not a full-scale investigation. And again, you know, the, the U.S. is not... A, a, a party to the Rome statute, so the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction to investigate fully, um, you know, but it could be referred by the you know, security counselor, et cetera. Um, but I think, you know, you combine, you combine those two issues together, it's very unlikely that there would be a lot of cooperation between the U.S. and the court. However, um, I, you know, I, I guess not however, I, I will say, you know, because I don't want to mm-hmm. be Overly critical or only criticizing a, you know, president-elect, you know, Trump administration. While President Obama had, you know, immediately did a lot to roll back, um, the damage that President Bush did under, you know, authorizing torture for so long. Um, and, you know, with the Army Field Manual and everything like that to fully and unequivocally, you know, say that the U.S. government will not torture people. Um, and, you know, pretty much stop the practice of extraordinary rendition, et cetera. He 
extremely expanded yep. the drone strike program. And, you know, obviously we haven't talked about it on, on this channel, um, yet, but if anybody looks into, you know, past writings or things that I've done or, you know, knows me from speaking out, I've been extremely against the drone program since the beginning. The expansion of it, um, it's a clear violation of international law, you know, especially the fact that we don't know all the people that we're killing. The double taps, you know, where it was policy to have a drone strike target a certain area, you know, with the supposed target, wait for people to come and, you know, provide first aid and, you know, emergency support and then strike those people. That is a clear violation of international law. Um, and that has been policy. It has also been policy to drone strike and then instead of counting the dead, you know, based on who they were, just mark any military aged male, deem them an enemy combatant. Which is ludicrous. Yep, yep. And I can see more of that happening, especially if uh the attitude is that uh you know, even Muslims or all Muslims are, you know, that it's not a religion necessarily, that it's uh, an ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can see war crimes spreading quickly. Yeah. And crimes against humanity spreading quickly. Hopefully it doesn't happen, you know. Um, definitely yeah. hoping for that. Um, but for all the negative yeah. of President Bush, he made it very clear from the day after 9-11 to, you know, his entire administration that we were at war with terrorism and not at war with um, Islam, which, I mean, it's mm-hmm. utterly ridiculous to say that you're at war with terrorism. That doesn't make any sense. You can't be at war with, you know, a practice. Um, right. But that kind of rhetoric of saying, you know, there's a religion and then there are people who are abusing that religion to carry out fundamentalist, you know, crazy, you know, radical attacks hasn't been clearly articulated by President-elect Trump or some of his top foreign policy advisors. And so it is going to be interesting to see what the policy is going forward. Well, definitely hoping that um, things would turn out more positive than I'm thinking right now. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> and I think, so, you know, I, I don't... Just to, to to bring it kind of back in full circle, you know, to the bigger picture of mass atrocities prevention, um, huh? under President Obama, he stood up the Atrocities Prevention Board, which, again, I will be the first person to criticize and critique the Atrocities Prevention Board and its effectiveness so far. But like many yep. things within, you know, U.S. government and, you know, international relations, it takes time for things like that to catch on. Um, but there is a very strong possibility that the APB, the Atrocities Prevention Board, which is a high-level interagency um, grouping of you know, different members of the interagency within the U.S. government that have to come together and actually focus on atrocities prevention specifically. There's nothing, you know, there was a law that was drafted, a bill, you know, the Genocide and Atrocities Prevention Act in the Senate, but it didn't get passed. And so right now there's only yeah. an executive order. And there's a good chance that that could be overturned by President Trump or just not carried out, in which case that would be definitely a setback in how the interagency communicates and thinks about atrocities prevention. Agreed. And, um, yeah, I do think a lot of the legislation around 
mass atrocities and uh, prevention may get put on the back burner or no burner at all, as you say. Right. Um, and uh, especially since, you know, some of them would pretty much go against some of the stated action and some of the concerns that we mentioned. Um, I It wouldn't make sense to have an agency that's going to, you know, come back to basically either stop you or ask you about, you know, your actions. Um, and then having it both ways. I, you know, I don't think we're going to have our cake and eat it too on that. Um, I think, I hope that it's maintained. I hope that the mass atrocities um, prevention um work that is taking place under this administration is upheld and maybe even improved in the next administration uh, based on, again, the election. Hard to say that that's, you know, I can't, it's not a, it's not my expectation. Yeah. I mean, you know, the silver lining, you know, if you try to be the optimist, uh, you know, which, you know, as you know, I'm always trying to be more on the optimist side of things, but uh, for situations like South Sudan, there could be a world in which, you know, somebody with the personality of, of Donald Trump, you know, se- seemingly a no-nonsense kind of guy, would approach the situation a little differently and actually be willing to, if presented with, you know, strong options, like the creation of a um, internationally uh, ran... Um, you know, temporarily internationally ran government in South Sudan as opposed to, you know, the current administration, um, you know, that he could actually put some effort and some action behind some out-of-the-box thinking to actually bring that conflict to an end um, and other conflicts like it. So there is that possibility. And he also has a record of uh, being fairly anti-war. But, you know, We'll have to see once exactly. you know, uh, President-elect Trump becomes president. Yes. Well, I think that's a good okay. way to uh, yeah. to wrap up, to end it. Um, I think so, too. listening, everybody. And uh, we'll try to get back on a more regular schedule. That's right. And uh, happy holidays, everybody. Uh, we'll be talking to you. And... Uh, Hopefully getting your feedback um, in the near future, the next couple of weeks. Definitely. Take care, everybody. <laughs>